Welcome to Debate IQ. This is the second part of a two-part panel discussion on the topic freedom to express and the right to retaliate. Can one be considered without the other? Well, in part one, we examine the global impact and implications of the recent most unfortunate terror attacks in France that left 17 people dead, including 12 staff of French satirical publication Charlie Hebdo in its Paris office. In part two, today, we will be looking closer at what all this means for Singapore and the multiracial and multi-religious fabric that we so jealously guard. How are Singaporeans responding? How have Singaporeans been responding to what has been happening? Has it prompted us to reflect and be more committed to close ranks? Or has it affected the trust between the various communities? Is there perhaps a need for us to rethink our tried and tested approach to maintaining racial and religious harmony? Well, with me on the panel is Mr. K. Shanmugam, Minister for Law and Foreign Affairs, Associate Professor Kwok Ken Moon, and an eminent sociologist and Associate Provost, Provost of the National Technological University, or NTU, and, of course, Dr. Nazri Barawi, a cultural critic and expert commentator on multiculturalism and the arts from the Singapore University for Technology and Design, or SUTD, and the Middle East Institute of the National University of Singapore. I'd like to be a little bit more specific today and say, in particular in, in France, uh, there have been people who have been criticizing France in the, in the last week, uh, saying that France is not as, as strongly uh, uh, as, as good with, with freedom of expression, so to speak. Uh, in fact, a specific reference was made to the Gaysot Act that prohibits the public expression of ideas that challenge the existence of the crimes against humanity committed by the Nazi Germany during World War II. Uh, now, where you have a society where some of these apparent contradictions or double standards appear, and, they, and then you have an incident like what happened where the caricatures seem to be targeted. And, and Charlie Hebdo seemed to have a, a long-standing history of targeting Muslims or Islam. That's been also highlighted. Yeah. Now, if that is true, shouldn't some of these uh, contradictions be addressed by countries like France? Minister. It's a bit difficult for me to speak on behalf of France. I think you've seen um, a lot of uh, literature, a lot of scholarly opinion that's coming out. On the one side, condemning obviously the terrorism and the acts of cruelty and uh, the murders. And on the other, there is a clear strand of opinion which says people should be allowed to print and publish whatever they like. And equally, you see opinion which says, look, whether it's France, or whether it's Germany, or whether it's the US, or Canada, or anywhere else in the world, every country puts some restraint on freedom of speech. You go back to Mills, the harm principle. Yeah. It's freedom, but that freedom has got to be tempered by some responsibility. So the real issue is not uh, whether there's absolute freedom. No country has that. No, not France, no other, no not other even, country. Not even the USA with this, no. with this First Amendment. Yeah. Every country puts some restrictions. The real issue is what are the restrictions that are acceptable within the social context 
for that country. And uh, this has become, I mean, we have had to grapple with it for a long time and we have dealt with it uh, in our own way. Other countries, France and so on, informed by their experiences, now also facing up to what's uh, coming through internationally. And you know, some sort of level has got to be found. That's the best I can say as an outsider. Yeah. I, I would want to uh, try to bring it to the idea of um, the contradictions that you talk about. Yeah. Um, I, or the, or the I, double standards. The double standards. Um, yeah, we, one can look at it as a double standard, but I, I see it more as a, a, um, a kind of um, a movement that France is going through. The, the, I, the reason why France probably had those, those laws and a lot of European countries, as you mentioned, was because you, Europe had experienced World War II and the, yes. the Holocaust happened in, in yeah, just, just in Europe, right? And, and, uh, and so Europeans have taken a sense of ownership into this event, right? And, and so have uh, invested a, a kind of moral, uh, uh, you know, uh, need to try to, to take a stand on this. Uh, what I think Europe needs to do is to also cons consider what's contemporary in U Europe today. And, that, that, and those are the large numbers of Muslim immigrants and, and, and embrace the Muslim immigrants as part of Europeans. There are European Muslims which are different from Middle East Muslims. Don't, don't deny the existence. Do not deny the, the existence. They are there. Right. And, yeah. and once they have embraced the sense of, a, of existence of a, a group of people that they normally think as other, right? And then so doesn't that smack of a certain kind of xenophobia? Yes, uh, xenophobia is not just a, a, a European um, problem now. I think it's, yeah. uh, it's but a, I mean in this context. In this context, yes, that that it, it can. I mean, it's it's more likely a very complex issue of of, of how people feel that their job are being taken because economy is not doing so well, and so the the far right uh, parties are you know in s some European countries have moved forward and you know drum yeah. up that I idea of the, that immigrants are coming in. And this is not just happening in Europe as well as, you know, some parts of it may be ha even happening here in Singapore. Yeah. And so we'll talk about that, that, that is linked, uh, Kenwin, before I come to you, that, that's linked to the point that you made in the last episode, last right. part one of the discussion, where you said that mm -hmm. there is a huge difference uh, whether you, you are affecting people who are a majority with right. assumed to have more power right. or a minority community that is assumed right. to have a lot less power. Yeah. So the I, power yeah, I don't want to talk in the terms of majority and minority, but rather privilege and less privilege. Because okay. when you talk about majority, minority, you assume a certain essentialized group of mm. this group known as the majority, maybe the Christians or the Muslims. Whereas, as in the last episode, we discussed how Muslims themselves are of different ilks and, and so does Christians. No, but I'm, I mean, I mean yep. essentially, when I'm talking about in France, right. 7 million small group yeah. uh, Muslims, right. how will they feel? Kenmon. Right. So we know that in, in, in recent years, there's been a kind of national debate on French identity yes. among French, French intellectuals. Mm. And I think it's very interesting to contrast this with what's happening in Germany. Uh, as you know, the, following this uh, incident, uh, Pegida, the patriotic Europeans against yes. Islamization, yes. Mm. that movement has has garnered more steam, mm. and and it was very interesting. They even that had a march, right? Yes, Eighteen thousand people. Yeah. Yes, and uh, and uh, even attracting Europeans from other countries, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 the the dominant motif there is that of a, a kind of fear of something called Islamization. And, and, and what's interesting is the German political leadership, Angela Merkel, mm. 
in, in, in her response, and the commitment to multiculturalism. And, and of course, that is another big term that can be variously interpreted. But this is very different. Multiculturalism puts on the agenda the recognition that European countries are no longer what they were in the past, that you can speak of a single French identity or a German identity that does not include new immigrants, people from other, other cultural backgrounds and so on. So if I could come back, if I could take this discussion to Singapore, which is what we're going to focus on today. Uh, Minister, I'm going to ask you a question that could be inconvenient. And it is to go back to the issue of the Tudong, right? Now, the Singapore government several years ago made, took a stand that any child who has a Tudong is not going to be admitted in the school, right? Now, it was, it was definitely controversial at that point in time. It definitely upset uh, quite a few Muslims in Singapore. Even those who weren't that affected by it got affected because a lot of people remember the front page picture of that little girl who was denied entrance into the school. It was a highly emotive argument until today. In fact, last year, it was revived again, the argument. Now, would that be an example of a situation where perhaps the Singapore government could have handled the matter better? What is the government's approach to multiracialism in the first place? Mm. You know, it is to recognize that we have different races and different religions, and to guarantee your right to practice your religion, and at the same time, uh, drawing clear boundaries on freedom of speech such that you cannot attack or run down somebody else's religion or race. So you cannot burn the Bible or Quran on the basis of freedom of speech. You cannot run these cartoons. And we build upon that to try and create a so convention, a set of social mores, where we prevent, for example, enclaves from occurring, where people try and integrate more and have a Singaporean identity, where we try and prevent discrimination based on race or religion, certainly public sector, and equality of opportunities. Because we believe we have to recognize the differences between people and then give them the best so that they can all move up. And you have seen the results, 50 years, racial harmony, religious harmony, tolerance, moving beyond tolerance to a degree of acceptance. Uh, all of this doesn't happen by chance. And it doesn't happen without active intervention. All the community groups that actively every week try and create situations where people from different races come together, work together, understand, workplace, education, no schools with large concentrations of a particular race. No areas with large con concentration, but everyone living together. Yeah. Then specifically, you have a wide variety of issues. Can you allow people to wear religious symbols in hospitals? Do you allow separate uh, prayer places in uh, workplaces, in public institutions? You know, myriad number of questions. Tudong is one example of that. By and large, the government's approach is where the workplace and where the institution is not going to be impacted adversely. The ethos of the institution is not going to be impacted adversely in terms of service. We should give the freedom for people to wear what they want in terms of religious symbolism or dress symbolism. So you see stat boards, you see uh, 
teachers being allowed to wear in many government organizations. Even our Speaker of Parliament. A speaker of Parliament with yeah. government organizations and so on. Okay. Uniform groups, no, because of a certain symbolic significance. So specific areas. And in schools, I think the Ministry of Education's point is we want a certain uh, sort of, you know, approach where children don't start differentiating between each other as far as possible. It's not possible completely. We look different sometimes. We attend different second language classes, but try and create more of the common space. Now, this is a judgment call. Yeah. yeah. I, yes. Yeah, no, I just want to talk about this. Uh, there are two aspects of this uh, yeah. issue of the, the Tudong controversy. And uh, in one aspect is this idea of um, the Tudong coming from the Muslim community itself. There are groups within the Muslim community that are politicizing the issue into something um, of, a, of a political stand. Uh, but um, having said that, I think there's a lot of debate going on about whether the Tudong is necessarily, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, something that you uh, comp you have to put on comp as a compulsory thing. Mm -hmm. But that aside, um, I think maybe the way forward is to to get rid of school uniforms, and so that people can just you know go to school and and express themselves in the way they express themselves in in polytechnic. Maybe the way forward is not to to try to create a common identity, but to recognize that there are, are so, different identities. I mean, I'm not sure whether that, that, that's necessarily the way, but, but I think that the point I'm, I'm gleaning from what you're saying is right. when, when there are too many laws and too many regulations in society right. and people's behavior is conditioned by a need to abide by the law right. and fear of being punished if you cross the line, right. then you actually have people who will stop thinking for themselves as to what therefore yeah. is right or wrong. Perhaps we should relax a little bit more about legislation and rules yeah. and maybe take the risk, take a bit of risk with people. A large uh, number of people don't need criminal laws for them to stay, uh, you know, to do the right thing. Most people do the right thing. You only need the laws for a small minority and uh, you generally must take the approach of criminalizing less rather than more. Yeah. And if you look at our laws, in substance, in essence, we have kept, for example, in this area, we have kept to trying to make sure that people can coexist. And we recognize that the laws can only do so much. It prevents people from doing violence to each other, from agitating each other across racial and religious lines. But you need to go much more beyond that, and that requires social conventions to be built. If you feel, and, and I think it's correct to assume, that Singapore, Singaporeans, after being together for 50 years or more, would have had the opportunity to develop our own ethos, our own sense of conventions, of what is right, what is wrong in our society, without Big Brother having to tell us, this is wrong, that is right. Mm. then. For example, in the area of free speech, freedom of expression, mm. why is it not possible for us, instead of MDA, for example, coming down and putting restrictions, why is it not possible for, for, to allow society to decide for themselves a little bit more on where and where not to regulate, yeah. uh, what to see, and how to see it? Yeah. Uh, if I can draw attention to the recent uh, restrictions placed on Tan Pin Pin's film, for example. Uh, yeah, the government may have its reasons why they feel that it's a biased portrayal of the government's decisions many years ago. And it may, may very well be valid. But at some point, I think it's important to 
trust people's judgment that yeah. they will view it yeah. and not accept it. Yeah. But I, I think moving forward, yeah. we, we should really uh, look at, um, yeah, I think the issue of trust between uh, the elites, political elites or social elites with with the, um, the community and the public, I think, uh, at large, is very important. And I think we should, instead of move forward cautiously and try to, um, I think we should try to, I think we, we're at a very, uh, uh, an opportune time now. And because I think Singaporeans are more idealistic, they have a stronger values and they're not afraid to speak about their values, whether it be religious values or even liberal values or, or, or a kind of ecological consciousness that they might have, the green society and civil society has kind of expressed this yeah. in a bigger way. This is just the opportune time for us to relax more than go, go cautious, I think. And, and, and so if we, and, and here it's very important for us to think about the arts and humanities. I want yes. to bring this up because mm. I think mm. this is the one area that Singapore lacks and lacks in a big way. Uh, we have invested a lot in STEM, science, technology, engineering, yeah. maths, because for economic viability, but I think for our just our basic survivability, we need to invest in a, in a bigger way in, yes. in the arts and education. Uh, Ishwar, can I come back yes, to please. your point? Uh, indeed, I think, uh, you know, what films are categorized in which way? And the MDA exists to really categorize with a public panel what is pornographic, what can be seen by which age groups. And as you know, a large amount of material is actually you know, passed through a public panel that uh, decides on social mores and says this is pornographic. This might, for very good reasons, offend religious sensitivities. We still need that, racial sensitivities. And we frequently get complaints that you know there are these films which offend Chinese or Indians or Malays or Islam or Christianity. And you do need a panel of citizens to decide on those issues. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think you would agree that a certain level, some kind of regulations, rules may be necessary. But I guess the point that's coming through is we can, we can put a greater emphasis on building, proactively building a collective reflex yes. that is more, more, um, more democratic or doesn't seem like coming from the government. And I think society as a whole will benefit from that. What's your sense? Any, any society would have some, place some limits and draw certain lines. Vishwa, you used, used the example of Tan Pin Pin's film. And it's a film about history. And in SG50, we are putting so much emphasis on understanding history. And for that very reason alone, plus many other good reasons that I can think of, there should not be a de facto ban on Pin Pin's film. I say this in my personal capacity without representing any organization. But technically, uh, I gather it's not banned. The, the film no. is not banned, but it, the restrictions and, on... Oh, I, yeah. I use the word de facto. Perhaps yeah, that's a yeah. bit strong. Hmm. Because, first of all, we are living in an age where content can be found in many sources, yeah. mm. yes. through many sources. Yeah. And critical judgment is something that we want to develop in the young. And yeah. possibly, too, that has got something to do with creativity, mm. which we sometimes stereotypically don't think of Singaporeans <laughs> as being creative and so on. Yeah. You're, not ki yeah. you're kidding. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that uh, how the line is drawn, and no doubt there, there are uh, public panels comp comprising uh, members of, 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 the, of, of the public and so on. But, you know, I, I certainly do hope that the lines are not drawn forever 
in the same way and that there will be some growth and development for want of better terms in, in, in the way we, we, we look at some of these issues. On the question of history, you see 1965 was certainly very important. But so is everything that happened from 1945 after the war. Mm -hmm. And of course before yeah. and so on. For, for a people to feel that they belong to a place. And this is why you are seeing all these debates about Bukit Brown and yes. so Citizens who have, no, who have had no idea where Bukit Brown was, <laughs> you know, no. are now sort of jealously guarding, uh, you know. And is this a good sign? In many ways, it's a good sign. Okay. But I agree with uh, him, uh, Professor, in that the common identity history uh, claiming by the young people of their identity of Singapore is extremely important. And uh, we as a society must facilitate that. The best buffer against radicalization of any form is if you have something that is supra, a, a larger identity that is yeah. strong. And, and that's what Ken Wun is referring to. You see, and that identity of being a Singaporean, being a part of a, of, of a history, a, 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 a common history. Uh, Can I take a different step from language this? and religion? Yes, yeah, please. I, I don't think that uh, we need to bang on the idea of a national identity all the time. I think, in fact, we have to loosen up. This year is the year of the nations, SG50. Every single day, people are going to tell you, you are Singaporean. Yeah. Right? And so I think we that there is a, a sense that we should actually move away a little bit from this idea of a national identity. Yes, there is a yearning to, to uh, identify from where you come from, but that does not have to have the nation right in front of uh, of us and, uh, and why I say this is because it's, it's important in trying to uh, cultivate a cosmopolitan existence right with a very strong national identity also comes a very strong sense of xenophobia I think that's that's uh, that happens of course you can define national identity in a more inclusive manner I think that's that's okay too but if I just look at the uh, the literary scene for example every single novel I read is a novel about the nation there yeah. is no novel um, or maybe this is too strong a sentence, but there's very few novels that I can see that deals with the human condition. What does it mean to be a human being in, in a place like Singapore? I think the identity comes about yeah. at a, at once you know your history, and that history yeah. and your legacy could yeah. even be based on your lineage, it can be based on your ethnic background right. and so on, so, but that all of us right. converge and mm -hmm. we, we live together. Right. See, but all that's not going to happen if you don't have a strong enough sense of history. Yes, That's I think point. A, a, yep, yep. a, a strong sense of history is important. Yeah. But if I can just um, yeah. add on a bit more, I think the idea of a revisionist history is uh, something that we should actually uh, move away from. I think all histories are contested. I think this is a very important, it's scholarly even to, to, um, to have. Some say that all histories are revisionist. Right, right exactly. <laughs> all history are narrative for coming from a literary okay, perspective. Okay, okay. It's a matter of story. becoming too yeah, thin okay, here. All right. okay, so but, but no, I mean, the, the, the point is important because you cannot define a, a single country by one uh, a you have to look at it as, a, as in multiple accounts. And, and so, yes, uh, maybe Tan Pin Pin's film has some concerns in terms of security, but it definitely has to be out there for, for people to make judgment. Okay, about, so, yeah. so let, me, let, me, let me ask a simple question. What well, on that, you know, yeah. in this day and age, there is no such thing as banning yeah. with <laughs> online. So any statement like that is more a statement of principle. Right. by the government. And it can only be a statement of principle because you can go and watch it anytime you want online. Yeah. yeah. So, but that statement of principle itself... It's an, it's an ethical is, stand. It, it, it is a stand yeah. and it's... 
see, the point we are making, Minister, is some of these no, things... Sorry, I, I wasn't going to debate this, but I, know. I was just making the point that okay. actually it's not as if, therefore, you can prevent people from watching. I agree. Yeah. And because you can't prevent people from watching, yeah. we need to loosen up on some of these impositions because mm. they don't really work at the end of the day. right? So if we've got another 10, 15 minutes left, but I just want to bring the discussion to this whole issue of, of the Sedition Act. Mm. Right. Uh, because in the in part one we talked about laws, blasphemy laws, and so on. In Singapore, we don't have uh, anti-blasphemy laws as much, but we have the Sedition Act. So, under what circumstances, Minister, would the Sedition Act be applied? Well, you have the Religious Harmony Act, you have the Sedition Act, uh, you have the Penal Code. Broadly, they will cover what I've already said. If you insult another religion, another race, I think uh, they can come into play. But we try and avoid court prosecutions as far as possible. We get our agencies to talk to them first and try and calm things down, prevent that kind of conduct, and indeed try and get them to reach out to the other side. And that has worked by and large. Some, sometimes we have had to prosecute. There is some concern on the ground that slowly the government or the legislation is being applied to cyberspace, to the internet, uh, where there's a general assumption that people have a lot more freedom and latitude to express themselves. Uh, is there any validity to that? Uh, uh, is it a valid assumption that the, the principles of the law that applies to mainstream would equally apply to cyberspace? In, I think in, uh, in a most all jurisdictions which are civilized come out and say what you do in the cyberspace and what you do in the physical space. If you go and attack someone and you cast aspersions on them, their religion, why should you be exempt? I mean, the laws should be the same regardless of the medium. Yeah, I think um, uh, the social me media basically, um, no, not basically, but really operates in a different way from, from the mainstream media. There is a lot more, I mean, in the mainstream media, and I used to be a journalist, there's a lot more double-checking of facts and, you know, um, a very careful, measured um, uh, kind of process before it comes out. And, of course, the, the social media works in a different manner. Uh, you have social media websites that does uh, have, have such processes, and, uh, such as the independent Singapore, for instance. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the social media is important because I think in terms, in Asia, if you look at Malaysian election and, and, and in Singapore election, the social media has been very in, influential in sometimes, you know, uh, helping uh, the, the, the voting public to come to a conclusion as well. So, um, and I, I think that's a, a, a good thing. It's not a, yeah. a, a bad thing. And, um, I, I don't I, disagree with yeah. the importance of social media. I'm thinking yeah. in terms of, yeah. I mean, would you allow people to put out uh, mm. images of the prophet yeah. in uh, a yeah. pornographic setting. So uh, let's be clear. Yeah. So yeah. so what, what you're okay. referring to, Minister, yeah. is in some of those very specific areas, yeah. uh, it's not no, so much Whatever we say the mainstream media cannot do, yeah. or you cannot do in the mainstream media, attack somebody else's religion, mm. attack somebody else's mm. race, mm. there are laws. Those apply equally to the mm -hmm. online space. Yeah. But again, I want to... It's not as if you can go out there and, you know, yeah. show as Charlie Hebdo did, Catholic nuns are masturbating. And just because you're online as opposed to the print, you get away with it. Yeah. yeah. Again, that, that point that we made last week about the over-dependency on legal, uh, legal principles yeah. to kind of shape society, I, I fear that this, uh, this very you know, more cautious approach towards 
legislation would uh, would create a society that is dependent on uh, legal mechanisms rather than social mores. So mm -hmm. I, I would. Um, we must encourage social mores and conventions to mm -hmm. develop. I, I don't know if it's a catch-22 situation or, or, you know, like, no, no. right now we, we seem to be, you know, focusing on the laws first yeah. and then the social... I would disagree. Thing. I think it, that you need the laws at the basis. Mm. Without those laws, then, you know, people can do whatever they like. Okay. And they are generally, you know, most people are law-abiding. Most people don't need laws in order to be here properly. But beyond that, you need to build consensus within society, and right. that depends right. really on civic consciousness. Mm. Maybe as a symbolic first move, we could go on uh, and try not to go too cautiously on the on that, well, having it as a base, yeah. but then move towards, uh, you know, that's, that's a symbolic first yeah. step, I think. Sure. Yeah. I think it's also incumbent for the wider society. Uh, here, coming from a university, I would also point to the, the, the academic community yeah. and also our students, you know, to, to be part of larger debates going on. You see, one of the problems with social media are these sort of one-liners, uh -huh. uh, one yeah. which are certainly limited in terms of the breadth and depth of... of and they can of, be very sharp. ...of argument. Yeah. They can be very sharp, but they can also be very shallow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. It can go a number of ways. And here, this I would like to pick up on what Nasri said about art. Mm. You know, uh, there is caricature and there's caricature. There's cartooning and there's cartooning. There are some cartoons which really make you think. Mm. Yep. Which sort of, you know, you, these in a way it comes closer to, to the experience of art where mm. your, your thinking, your, 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 your way you, you look at the world, you know, it's a little uh, jolted without you sort of being yeah. angry that your religion yeah. is being yeah. uh, uh, blasphemed and yeah. so on. If I could pick yeah. up very quickly, yeah. uh, Kenwon, on yeah. your point. Uh, Minister, one of, the, one of the suggestions that seem to be coming through is, as a society, and I think ministers such as you and others have also mentioned that, we can afford to chill a lot more. The word is chill. We can afford to relax a lot more uh, when people take, you know, Take, take a dig at you, uh, it doesn't mean that they want to offend you. So it's, it's the same concept. Sometimes cartoons, caricature, it could be on stage, it could be comedy, it could be mocking someone, but in a, in a, in a friendly way, not, not meant to insult or offend. But is it possible for if society moves a little bit more towards taking things a little bit more lightly, and not taking everything so literally, mm. we might actually create a buffer, an effective right. buffer, because it provides an outlet yeah. for people to... And I think, by and large, Singaporeans are not given to being offensive in that sense. Yeah, you know. so. so why don't we give ourselves... Is it possible for us to give a little bit more leeway? I'm a little perplexed because why is that not possible? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, what is there to prevent it? It's, a, it's the case now. Well, there's yeah. a general sense that it's, it's, it's not accepted. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I, I just want to say that uh, maybe what we need also, uh, stemming from that, um, what uh, Ken Woon said about uh, university and, uh, you know, we need a, a group of, um, of, of thought leaders or ethic um, leaders maybe or, or someone to, with measured responses to be out there on the forefront, not part of the government, not part of the yeah. public, yes. to, to an intellect, inter, inter, intelligentsia basically. We need functioning more on, you know, public intellectuals. Third. Spaces. Third, space. yeah. third yes. spaces, third spaces, and, yeah. and third ways. Yeah. Because 
you know, things get polarized very easily. Yeah. Uh, if you look at, right. at the LGBT debate, mm -hmm. it's you know the it's one or the other liberal individualists versus yeah. uh, the communitarians, right. and, yeah. and there's no way to to talk. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the only way to go about doing this, again, I would stress, is a inve bigger investment into the arts and humanities because the arts and humanities in, invites in you a sense of self-reflexivity sure. that I think Singaporeans lack, actually. So arts yeah. and humanities, yeah. greater investment, a lot more leeway. Yeah. The other thing is what Ken Wen highlighted. Is it not possible for, I mean, right now, uh, political forums in the universities, I think, are not allowed. Is it not possible for us to relax a little bit more on that? I, I don't need you to commit, but as a general principle, mm -hmm. I think that would be. By political forums I mean, forums, you know, forums. rallies, discussions that used but to be they the do. case. I mean, uh, no, but are, all those are organized, people come, opposition politicians come, ministers come, and we have discussions with students. But so that's not quite. You, you are a associate provost well, of NTU. <laughs> let's, let's put it this way. The, the, the general position, as far as I would put it, is that we make a distinction between uh, political discussion and partisanship, or partisan discussion. Okay. Yeah, I, I, yeah. So, I mean, if university students are not concerned about politics, and what's not politics? Yeah. Charlie Hebdo is politics. Mm -hmm. uh, so, what, are there restrictions today on what you can put up? I mean, if, if, if a group of students come together and say, we'd like to hold a, a, a rally just to talk about a particular issue. I, I think intellectual, yeah, intellectual discussion is always to be encouraged. No, no, but is it allowed or is it not allowed? This, what, what's the I position? No, no, I don't think there is a, a, an edict disallowing okay. uh, political intellectual discussion. Uh, there, there are concerns about partisan yes, discussions. which is fair. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, a, a professor does not use the uh, lectern to tell students how to vote. That would, especially with a PhD behind his or her name, mm -hmm. and, you know, in fact, I our, surely, first, I surely hope so. our first duty is to, to share the spirit of critical thinking with yeah. our students. Well, I think we'll have to wrap now. So I'd like to again uh, ask for your comments. One specific question, which is, in, in light of what's happening around the world, what other countries like France and so on are experiencing, it is very clear that there needs to be a lot more of slow release of stress and tension and frustrations and not allow it to be pent up, right? I mean, it's very clear. You, you, you can't open the sluice gates or flood gates like that, but you need to allow for some slow release. In what areas specifically, I'd like to ask each one of you, ending with the minister, in what areas do you think we can afford to let up a lot more than what we have, what we're doing today? Yeah, no, certainly repression, like you uh, mentioned, is, uh, it's, it's very damaging to a society, right? as, as it is to a person. Right? And I think uh, what we need to do is to have a, a, a probably a, a, a more open sense of, uh, of discourse. And I mean this uh, in terms of intellectual discussions, but also um, in, in, in terms of writing in the newspapers about race and religion in a critical manner, even though those are taboo topics. I think, I think we more of those are... Uh, I think un universities need to also kind of consider, you know, 
putting out public intellectuals out there i think uh, that this is very important i i, I don't know if uh, I, i feel that certain academics would be wary about going up and talking in public for fear of i don't know whatever uh, and and this is not just my feel i think he's just speaking to fellow academicians so yeah uh, you're not talking about specific rules you're talking about a general sense the general sense yeah the general sense is uh, trying to embrace a more inclusive kind of environment and that means uh, not putting so so much focus on on the legalities not so uh, cautious in that sense but uh, to to go behind and and try to be more open i mean i i think this is what singapore needs and and i think the way forward really is to try to get a greater sense of the arts and humanities again i'm i'm putting this out there because i think this is where we can um, maybe we can have a you know an institution like the a star but for the humanities uh, something like that that's a good idea yeah all right can mm. work i i pick up on your your word cosmopolitan yeah. and there is there is the kind of cosmopolitanism of you know starbucks and mcdonalds and so on yeah. that's we are we are inundated by that yes but there's also a deeper kind of cosmopolitanism that's related to the very best traditions of humanism west east in any religious tradition you find that that commitment to 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 humanity whether or not it's inflected by religious ideas and, and and in singapore we can develop uh i wouldn't say a singaporean humanism but we can contribute to, to a humanistic tradition i'll just give you one example about taboos a world without taboos would be such a radically modern world that nothing is sacred nothing is off limits that's not going to happen and i'm not sure whether we want to live in that yeah, kind of world absolutely. but let me give you an example which i i have used before in in earlier forums you know in in, in terms of uh, popular taboos we we every cultural group may have some taboos about the body especially in relation to cleanliness and in relation to hygiene yeah and we're not speaking just of physical hygiene including ideas about being spir- spiritually polluted and so on consider the case of blood donation and consider the case that people from many different cultural backgrounds donate blood to be used by many others from other backgrounds or many backgrounds the muslims can give blood the the only caveat is that it should not be on a commercial basis for example mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and isn't that something very humanistic that blood is to be given but not to be sold and bought and you see so i uh, such ideas which the singapore laboratory in the singapore environment can really uh, participate in develop articulate i think we have a special role to play in the world we've got our work cut out for ourselves in terms of not just the so called management sure. of differences sure but beyond that what's more than that what's deeper than that thank you Minister, before you say, if you could just comment on going back to the main topic, uh, do you think there is a possibility that we could start opening up space for a lot more open discussions on race, religion, language, and history? And history. Well, you see, I, I have a problem, Mr. Shah. Each time you ask that, because I have explained the rationale for the laws. Sure. They are no different from many other countries, so I'm not quite sure what does opening up mean. But I. it's not as if it's not open i think 
we, a large section of our population will probably not want us to go down the route of, say, the European countries in, say, allowing uh, people to blaspheme another religion. I don't think we want to go down there. No, certainly not. I think where we want to go is having a lot more informed discussions, mature discussions amongst people on issues of race and religion. And that can help build, I think, much stronger concrete bonds if we can take a gentle step towards that kind of discussion, which may appear critical of, uh, or not everyone might be comfortable with it, but if we can try and have that discourse, that will be useful. But I think we need to be careful because you can't run ahead of what your society wants. These are not laws and conventions and mores that the government or people in power can do anything about. It's got to be what the society is comfortable with. Well, that's a very good point to end with. Well, it leaves me now to say once again a big thank you to the three of you, my panelists, Minister Kenwun and Nasri, for joining us. I think some of the points that were raised uh, may appear conceptual, broad stroke, but we are not here to discuss and come up with an action plan. That's not the purpose. In fact, the whole purpose of IQ is to allow for open discussions that could be inconclusive. But we should not try and force conclusions when we're not ready. So it doesn't matter that we may not have arrived at a consensus and an action plan on what needs to be done, but airing of ideas, exchanging those ideas, disagreeing, that sets the tone for a better society. And that's what IQ stands for. And I hope that we'll have more discussions of this nature. Well, I guess it leaves me now to once again thank my panelists, Minister K. Shanmugam, Associate Professor Kwok Kenwon, and Dr. Nasri Barawi. Well, remember, it's your right to ask a question and theirs to answer it. We make it happen. This has been IQ, Inconvenient Questions. <laughs>